Exodus 9, 1 through 7. Read it with me, if you will. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and tell him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you do not let them go, and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle, on your field, your ho- I'm sorry, uh, uh, in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the oxen, on the sheep, a very severe pestilence. And the Lord will make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing shall die of all that belongs to the children of Israel. Then the Lord appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So the Lord did this thing in the next day, and all the livestock of Egypt died. But of the livestock of the children of Israel, no one died. Then Pharaoh sent, and indeed not even one of the livestock of the Israelites was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh became hard, and he did not let the people go. Will you pray with me, please? God, I pray that your word would come alive, that your word would burst open. God is the living word that it is, and minister to every one of us right where we're at. From those who barely have any concept of you to those who feel like they know every facet of you. Today, God, speak in our ears to our hearts and minds that which we need to hear. Not just that which we want to hear. But perform, Lord. In every wound, provide healing. In every disobedience, provide warning. In every complacency, provide challenge. In every discouragement, provide encouragement. In every area darkened, deafened, provide life. Lord, I just pray right now that you would powerfully, personally, profoundly speak. I recognize I can't humanly do that, but it's never been about me. Thank you for that. So God, immerse me in your spirit that I would disappear and you would be seen. And fill me to overflowing that, God, I would simply be a conduit of heaven. And in that, Lord, now, don't let a word be spoken amiss. Not one too many, not one too few. Not one second beyond or before. God, minister now. Let every word impact like grenades upon our hearts in such a way, Lord, that you would do everything you intend to do with each of us. That every one of us could personally say, I encountered Jesus today. And in doing so, God, may we corporately be able to say, Glory, glory, glory to the King Most High. To Lord God Almighty. So Lord, now have your way, we pray. Minister, Lord, teach, exhort, encourage, say, Oh, let this be the day of great celebration. As we seek to fellowship with you in your word now. May we have so much fun. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible have the final say. Notice, by the way, the term them is in italics. Did you notice that? So it says, for instance, if you read literally, anything in italics means that the translators took the original language, added the word in to help us better understand it. Literally, it says, but if you refuse to let go. And I think that that's kind of interesting. Now, to put things into context again, God has been observing for 430 years the nation of Israel in the land of Egypt. Over the last 400 years, they have been slaves. And God says, it's time. He had already promised this back in Genesis 15. None of this was sort of a second thought or a plan B before they were ever, four generations before they ever went into the promised land. I'm sorry, before before they ever went into Egypt. And then went back into the promised land. God had already promised it in Genesis 15. So, it had already been there. And he had said, from the fourth generation in, interesting, it would be the fourth generation into Egypt, and then the fourth generation to get out. Now, with that in mind, that means you've been spending four centuries in Egypt. It's a place where there is a multiplicity of gods. And with those gods, by the way, there were gods of pleasure, there were gods of love, there were gods of might, there were gods, and they, they worshipped everything from frogs to dung beetles. And, and with that, God has to do more than pull his people out of Egypt, he's got to pull Egypt out of his people. And one of the things that becomes really simple and profound is that God is not interested in simply removing, he's interested in deliverance, and to deliver means there has to be a location to take it to. And God never just said, 
Then let's just get out of here and we'll figure it out later. He knows what he's doing and he knows where he wants to take you. Scripture says for those who have called on Jesus Christ, we've been delivered out of the hand of the enemy. We've been delivered out of the land of bondage, out of the hand of the enemy, and into the son that he loves. There was an into, there was a deliverance address. Now please understand, with that in mind, there is a series of judgments that God is putting here. And this isn't just random misery. God is hand-selecting those things that are worshipped in Egypt to show that He is Almighty, Most High. And for Him to be Almighty, He has to be mightier than everything else. For Him to be Most High, He has to be above everything else. So what He's doing is systematically taking down everything that Egypt worships, so that when Israel leaves, nothing from Egypt should be taken with except what's given them to give to God. And by the way, in God's infinite love, it's more than just ministering to the slave. Strange, interestingly enough, God also loves the taskmaster enough that when He beats up all of their quote-unquote gods, that the Egyptians would know that He's Lord too, so they would come too. See, God doesn't want anyone to perish. Whether they be the nastiest person on earth, or the person that you think is a narrow nudge into heaven. In both cases, by the way, we still need the same Savior. And in this, God says that there will be a challenge, but in the end, we're going to come out of this thing, and we're going to be victorious. Pharaoh has no interest in submitting, especially to God. And Pharaoh never will. Pharaoh will never finally go, for good, oh, you're right, I surrender, blah, blah. He'll see those moments where it appears to be the case in this dance of give and take. But in the end, the only way to win over Pharaoh and his army is to see them destroyed. And please understand that was not because God hated Pharaoh. It was because God loved Israel. And with that then, there is this battle, and the battle is over letting go. And that's what's even said here. So, in the end of it all, you look at it, and so what is God saying? He's saying, you better let go or I'll kill your cows? Is that basically what he's saying? What in the world does that mean? Let's develop a few things in our text, and then as we develop a few things in our text, we'll discover why this is so important that God would actually take down the livestock like that. First of all, take a look at this. Notice in verse 1 it says, The Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and tell him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews. Now, why is that important? Well, first of all, it's important to note that the idea of the term Hebrews, well, there's two very important keys with that. One is, that's the term the Egyptians used for those people. They didn't call them Israelites. Now, understand, to be an Israelite meant one of two things, or both. One is that you were a direct descendant of a man named Israel, thus an Israelite. You could say that my children could be called holidayites, in that sense, or Antoniites. Now, with that in mind, Israel was the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of this people. And so you could say that. But the land in which that God had promised them, He called it the land of Israel. And because He promised that land, no Egyptian is going to call them Israelites. Because that would be like thinking He owns every one of you here, and He would call you if you were English, but you actually belonged in another country. And so calling you by the country you came from would actually say you belong somewhere else. Interesting, because the term Hebrew itself, here's the irony of it, Ivraut means one from beyond, or not from around here. Now, that alone is a bit strange to me, because you're making claims to a people whose name, in essence, means foreigner. And that should tell you something already. And so for God to say, the Lord God of the Hebrews... He's saying two very important things. One is, those are my people. And second is, they don't even belong to you because they're not even from here anyway. Interesting, if you know that battle, and I won't get into the politic of it, between the quote-unquote Palestinians and the quote-unquote Israelis of today, Palestinian or Palestina means, if you will, means foreigner as well. So you have foreigner and one from not around here arguing over land and saying it's theirs. Do you find it strange to you? And unless somebody who has a right to land allocates it, think about it, who has a right to claim it when it's like, my name is not local, what's yours? Foreigner. This is my land. Yeah, good job, not local. You get the idea. But for God to say, look it, the God of those people. And that's been the problem from the very beginning when Pharaoh says, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, who is this Lord of yours that I should submit? 
so on. These are my people. And God started by saying, let's just get something straight here. These people are not yours. And God could stand before the enemy of your soul today and say, look at those people are mine. They're not yours. They don't belong to you. And never expect Satan to go, oh, you're right, have them. It's not going to happen. So there's going to be a systematic takedown. Now, second thing, by the way, is that they may serve me. And the term, by the way, for what it's worth, is what it is. And, 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 and the, the point of that, by the way, is it's the same one that's often used for worship. God's like, look at I'm looking for worship, but the fact that he equates those two words is fundamental to me. I'll move on to the next point on this, though. And that's this, and this is where it gets fun. And by the way, it's a shame, because apparently by the time I transferred it, this was Hebrew. It's not Hebrew now. We're all aware of that. So try not to look at that as if it were a cuss word or anything. But um, here are the words, by the way. The first word is the word Debeel. Did you say Debeel? The second word is Kevet. And, and the third word is Nebod. So listen, we should say it loud enough for the guys dancing in the, the tent. Debeel. Kevet. Kevet. Nebod. Ma'od is still used quite often today, by the way, in Israel. Ma'od means lots. Like when you say thank you, you say toda, toda But when you say someone that's really like a big ma'od is the word you would use. For instance, the words for high priest, or big priest, would be the idea. Kohen gadol, ga'od, and that's the idea. Ma'od is the word for much, or a lot, or big. Now, the word for disease, that's our first word, the ber. Say the ber with me. The yeah. by the way, means, from a root which means to destroy, means something that decays and just breaks down until it's just destroyed. Yeah. Consider that. Listen, it's not about something that just kind of flips a switch and, ah, and drops. This is something that decays and erodes and drops down until it just decays to nothing. Are you with me on that? Yeah. That's our first of the three words. The second word, by the way, kavid, and that's going to be the key word here on this because it'll bounce back later. Say kavid. Kavet is the word for heavy, or thick, or weighty. And then me'od, which means much, or great. So you put that together, what you have is this great, heavy, thick thing that's going to just tear it down to nothing. And that's what God says. If you don't let go, the God of those people, they belong to me. The reason, they're for, the reason they are from beyond is because they belong to the one who is from beyond. This is if you don't let go, this is what's going to happen to your livestock. This, again, the bell, the vid, the this thick, heavy, really big, fat, disease, death. Now with that in mind, let's start moving this. Because this is what God says in verse 4. The Lord will make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. Now perhaps you might be unaware of the fact, but if you remember on the last plague, and this is by the way now, if you think about it, our fourth plague. God bless you. Then when God started walking them through, on the last plague something changed. And that was that God made a distinction as well. Now, Bible students, look back to the last plague and tell me what the difference is of what distinction God made on the last plague versus this one. What do you see as a difference? Anyone see it? It's at the end of chapter 8. It's that last section there. Who has it? Anyone? Yes, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, he said, I'll make a distinguishment or a difference. What's the difference there? Yeah, compared to this one. What does he say in the last plague? The plague, the plague before this one. What's that? Yeah, no, he says, I'll make a difference or a distinguishing between... Excellent. Notice in the last plague, he says, I will make a difference or a distinguishing between my people and your people. In other words, up to this point, Pharaoh, you haven't even figured out whose people are who. 
So with that in mind, let's just make clear who my kavan, some of you should remember that because you remember what side of the room you sat on, because some of you were really happy to be on the side without the flies, that were laying babies in your skin, if you remember, and eating that skin, and so, you know, you were pretty happy to not be on that, the other side. Now remember, so listen, the last time what God said is, I'm going to make a big difference, a very clear difference between my people and your people. That's where he said last time, if you remember. And the difference was, if you remember, my people were not getting eaten up. My people were not hosting corruption like the people outside of Goshen. And the people that were all corralled into this area here, where God, the people who were seeking God, were protected. Notice the difference between that and this. Because in that one, the difference is between my people and your people. Now the difference is between my cows and your cows. And you think, really? That's what this is? This is a difference between my cows and your cows? That's what we're talking about here. So what's the big deal about cows? Well, let me start showing you what God is doing. <laughs> there are two particular gods that are worshipped that were fundamental in, uh, in, in Egypt. And this is the first of them. One's a goddess and one is a god. Neither, of course, really what they say they are, but just the same. See that, by the way? Notice she has this, like, sun-type thing on the top of her head with the horns. She is known, by the way, as, the, as a goddess. That particular symbol becomes fundamental. You'll see it, by the way. Well, that's not really well done. You can see it there as well. Got hieroglyphic paintings. You can see it, by the way, on wall columns and on temples dedicated to her. She also is claimed to be the goddess who has a close relationship with Pharaoh. The question is, what is she the goddess of? She's the goddess of love. <laughs> because when I think of love, I think cows. <laughs> I shouldn't pick on it too much. Um, we tested our a nine-year-old because certainly she thinks that way because cows are made of steaks. So she's like, well, up there with pink and other things. I don't want to steer her wrong. Anyways, here's the other side of it. Here's the male figure. His name is Apis. He comes in several colors, as you see. Always represented by a bull. And anytime you have Apis around, you've got a whole lot of bull you're dealing with. That's the idea. And with that, what is he the god of? The god of strength. Now you'd say, that seems so crazy people would do that. Do you realize that over 100 million people today still worship cows? 100 million people. It makes sense. Because cows, cows are the source of food. Well, unfortunately, everyone who worships them will not eat them. That's mm -hmm. the odd thing. Oh, you know, for some of us who, you're right, like Texas, you would think would worship cows. <laughs> <laughs> Just kill it and grill it. <laughs> Of the particular people who do worship and venerate cows, by the way, 2% of them will still make statues out of their gum as part of their worship. 1% of them, on special occasions, will drink their urine. Yeah, join that if you like. I think it's silly, but anyways. And, it's like, and by the way, it isn't like just people that you would find are obscure. For instance, some of you are familiar with Mahatma Gandhi. In an article, by the way, called The Compilation of Gandhi's Views on Cow Protection, this is what it says. December, I'm sorry, July 7th, by the way, uh, 1927. I worship it and shall defend its worship against the whole world in that it is the central fact of Hinduism is cow protection. He regarded, by the way, his cow better than his earthly mother, as he called her, the mother to millions of Indian mankind. Now, I want to start putting this together for a minute. And you can see, by the way, the festivals are huge. They wrap them in garlands. We see that, by the way, in the book of Acts, if you remember, when they were offering such a cow to Zeus, as they thought Paul was Zeus. I want you to take a look at this with me for a second, and it all starts to make sense to me. Listen. I've got a quote-unquote goddess of love, my quote-unquote god of strength. And no god or goddess will seem to be of greater problems, if you think about it, to Israel than this one. Think about what happens in the wilderness. We don't even have to get out of the book of Exodus. They finally do get out there in the wilderness, and what happens? 
Moses is up for 40 days, up on a mountain, getting the commands from God. And as he is, he leaves his big brother Aaron down to take care of the people. Do you remember what happens? He doesn't make a golden frog. He makes a golden cow. And people dance around it. More suitably, they dance around it and make it. And of course, on the way down, Moses is with Joshua. And Joshua says, I think that's the sound of war. And he is a warrior. And Moses says, no. That's just them singing. Which tells you what he was probably saying at the time. But <laughs> how sad it was. And it was, and you know what? I think about how much of, of what is dedicated to those two things sounds like war. But it doesn't go just there. Because ultimately that will be ground up and thrown in the water. People have to drink it. That thing's not going to be put back together anytime soon. But you can fast forward a few hundred years, and by a thousand BC, then it's David. And after David is Solomon. And after Solomon, the kingdom divides. In the south, it's David's son, Rehoboam. In the north, it's David's, I'm sorry, Solomon's old commander, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, Jeroboam. Jeroboam says, I can't get those people, I can't let my ten tribes now that he's overseeing go down to Jerusalem. That's where their allegiance will bend, and then they'll actually want to kill me and just go back. So I'll make it easy on them. So in Bethel, which by the way means house of God, and up in the area of Dan, that's the northernmost part, he puts up two golden calves. Which by the way will be there, well one of them will be destroyed within a couple hundred and twenty years, but then the other one will actually be there until the destruction of Israel. You can go and visit that altar to this day, or mock up of it, we do it when we go to Israel. We talk about the, the problem we have with running to the tangible. How we always feel like we'll trade God in for something we can touch. And we know God's really wonderful, and I know He's my man, but I'm going to go find a real one. You know, that kind of thing. God's my security, but I'm going to go get this. And God's my peace, but I'm going to make sure that I get it. God knows my Well, this is something God is dealing with for the people. And we'll continue to deal with the people, to be honest, until they're brought back after their captivity in the 400s, early 500s BC. Well, listen, please. God starts by saying, look, you're my people. And Isaiah 40 tells us, by 42 tells us, you're my people. Don't forget to whom you belong. You don't belong to the world. You don't belong to the devil. You belong to me, says the Lord. You are mine. I've redeemed you. I've called you by name. Mine. You're not from here. You're sojourners. You're pilgrims on this earth. Oh, you're going to be walking through it like a hotel room. You'll take advantage of the things, but you're checking out sooner or later. And when you are, man, you really want to make sure that when you go home, there's something waiting for you. You haven't spent your whole life living in that hotel room as if that was everything. And it's a sign of maturity, by the way. I don't know about you. I know what it's like to be so in the moment nothing else seems to matter. And you spend all this money and everything on something you won't need a day from now. But in the moment, you're great. And then the day's over. And then you're like, what am, you know. You go visit a country. Ever do this? Those of you who are world travelers, you go visit a country, especially if you're on the mission field, and you'll buy like the clothes of the place. And you know, and for the moment, man, you go hot there. You know, you're looking good. You're in Nigeria, and you've got that tie-dye, bright color thing, you know. And you've got the woo-woo, and you're looking good. But there is no way on God's green earth you are going to wear that in London. Yeah, to be honest, there's like a, one day a year you can wear it just because of the temperature. And even on that day, you're thinking, no, nah, probably not, not today. But you know, for that day or two, you were, you were looking good. People are like, ooh, you're, you're Nigerian. <laughs> like, like, you, like you surprised that. You do have a life. You get so caught up in the moment, man. You've invested everything. You know, what did you do in the end? You left it behind. You're like, this doesn't even apply to the real life. It applied to this moment really well, but then what? Then you like wake up. It's like spending everything in a dream and not wanting to wake up because you were rich in your dream, but now real life happens. And you know it because when that alarm goes off, you like want to shoot it. You know? 
And you know, if you're anything like me, you'll put like some pleasant song that stopped being pleasant the moment it became your alarm. Right? You love that song until it woke you up. And now you're like, take my life. Okay, maybe that's just you. Alright, so listen. But if you refuse to let go, the hand of the Lord is going to be on your cattle. The hand of the Lord, by the way. Now please understand something. First of all, in the book of Isaiah, and that's where I would take you first. In Isaiah 40, verse 12, it says this. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked the heavens by its expanse? It's such a beautiful verse. You take all of the seas, all of the oceans, every one of them, and you can take them, and God can just put them right there in that little cup. You ever do, I mean, people like this, you can fit a little bit of water in there. Not much to really get on someone and tell them to design But if God were to do that, goodbye. Because that's all of the oceans, all of the seas, all of the water, every vapor can sit in this little area here. And then God said, let's mark the heavens, which, by the way, scientists, if they're really honest, and most of them are, will tell you, we still can't figure out where the end of it is. So you know what they say, right? It's expanding. Now, you know, the honest truth of it is, we just don't have anything to measure how far it is. And God says, well, that's, I can tell you how far that is. That's just that. That's the universe. And they're going, it's expanding. God goes, Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it's kind of cool because coming from California, it's like, yeah. Oh, how is the universe? Like, <laughs> now, it tells us that there are times, for instance, when God speaks through Samuel to Saul, when Saul is being coronated, the king before David. And he says, you really should follow the Lord and obey him. If you know God's hand will be on you, now take that hand that marked the universe, that holds the seas, and go, that's not good. There's just nothing good about that. Now, the reason God does that, to be honest, is because he really wants to squish out of you what doesn't belong. And there are times where, you know what, that's what it takes. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in, well, some of you may have been in this situation where you've been around somebody that's freaking out from a bad drug binge, where you just held them down until they stopped. You just held them, and you held them, because what you're really trying to do, strangely enough, is not hurt them. If you've ever worked in places like trauma places, you strap someone like that down for the same reason, so they can't hurt themselves. So they can't run off and do something miserably horrible. When God's hands upon you, it's a horrible place to be, but it's worse if it wasn't there. Does that make sense? If you love your kids, you know what it's like? There are ways to restrain your kid without hurting them. And one of them is just gently put your hand on their head and say, this is as far as you go. Don't make me speak. <laughs> <laughs> but there's another place, by the way, in regards to God's hand. According to Scripture, by the way, and again, Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 28, this is it is. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. So God can either do this or this. If he does this, he's on you pushing down. If he does this, you're in it. And he says, now, who exactly can jump into something that marked the universe and pull you out of there? You really think Satan's that man? You really think all of the armies of hell are able to get into that hand right there? Now, I remind you, God's got more than one. That means, with but the other one when something's trying to get at you, because he's the good shepherd, he knows how to protect his sheep. <laughs> Interesting, by the way, and I challenge you to take a look at this on your own. In Isaiah, chapters 5 through 10, in those chapters, five different times, God will speak about something where his hand is upon them, making life really rough for the moment. Again, the word's heavy. Do you remember that word in regards to those three words in the pestilence? Yeah. Heavy. Making it heavy. And then he says... But in all of that, my hand's still outstretched, still. So God does this, and he does this. So there's that moment, you're kind of running, and you're kind of running, and God loves you enough to push you down. He goes, please, just take my hand, just take my hand, it's enough. That's it. And you're like, no, 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 no. And then he goes, well, let me tell you what else is going to happen. And then the Babylonians are going to come in. Now, how about now? My hand's still outstretched. Now, what kind of God keeps his hand stretched out? The one who loves you. One is patient enough to go, oh, no. Because if it were us, and you should thank the Lord, you're not God, any one of us. Because you know what happened? First of all, it wouldn't be this. It would be, Bish. that's what it would be first. And then it would be like, get up so that can happen again. Foo. You know, you know. okay, maybe that's just you. But you get the idea. Now, now listen on all of that. 
God says, if you don't let go, if you don't let go, this is what's going to happen. Big, fat, heavy disease to death. Well, what is it? Oh, wait a minute. Think about those two things for a minute. It's love and strength. Weren't those the two things that were a cow and a bull? That makes so much sense. Because listen, think about this for a second. This is how a part of what belongs to you, God's people, should look different than what belongs to, and I should, I won't do it over there, people and somewhere else. Okay? I just put no aisle just to make that happen. But, but follow me on this. In the beginning, he says, first of all, before we do that, we want to make a clear distinction between who is mine and who isn't. Which side are you on? If his hand is outstretched, how do I go from this to this? That's quite simple. It's his hand. You know, the beautiful part is, if his hand is reached out, the only thing I have to do is, is take it. I don't even have to lunge or jump or anything. He made it so easy that all he's asking is, could you just take this hand, please? I love you. I'm not asking you to earn it. I'm asking you to fight for it. I'm, I'm, I'm sticking it in your face. It's more work pushing my hand away than taking it. Let me say that again. It's more work pushing my hand away than taking it. And some of you, you know that because you're exhausted from fighting God's hand. You're like, you're like, no, no, no. God's all right. Mm, how about now? Mm, how about now? I mean, by the time we're done, we're like a cartoon where everything's like a pancake, you know? But in the beginning, what's to make that distinction? Remember that distinction in the beginning was someone in the world, anyone that isn't, he's just getting eaten up. You get eaten up. Man, little pieces of them get taken out. Every relationship, every venture, everything that sounded so good, just a little piece of taken out. And you're hosting corruption. God says that should never be my people. That is not what you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be living a Goshen life. Not that. Now look, if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, let me make sure, let me make clear what that is. Jesus Christ is this, the only begotten Son of God. And let me make clear what that is. The word of the Greek is monogenes. Mono means one genus like gene. In other words, Jesus is the only one from the Father's gene pool. But when someone tells you that God has no sons, I'd say God's got a whole lot of sons. I'm one of them. If you've accepted Christ, ladies, even you are as well. Because God's into adoption. This isn't about a gender thing. A son is a permanent member of the family. A daughter's considered temporary because she'll be married off. God doesn't look at a girl and go, well, you'll be with us for a little bit. The idea of it is God's like, you're mine. You're mine. You're mine permanently. You're mine. I don't know how many sons God has. No, I don't know that number, but it's a lot. I'm one of them. And so when you say, that's just No, listen, follow me on this for a second. Please follow me on this. That God knew that every one of us were going to be guilty. He knew that every one of us would make bad choices, selfish choices, self-centered choices. And God is a perfect judge, punishes all wrong. And that's, by the way, the difference between Jesus, by the way, and anything else. Either what's going to happen is God's going to not punish that wrong, or you're going to punish it and you're going to be eternally damned. Those are your options. Your good outweighs your bad, still means you got bad. Well, what happens to the bad? My God punished all of your bad and all of my bad. And he did it by making a voluntary choice. He says, I'll take that. And Jesus the Christ came to earth, was never, ever Guilty, never sinful, is never wrong, and took by choice your guilt and my guilt upon himself and chose to, to accept the, the death that would be deserved if all of our guilt were put on one individual. Think about it. Hitler, Mussolini, Mao Zedong, whoever you want to put in there, the sick and twisted people that run into movie theaters and shoot everyone, put all of those people together and the one thing, how would you punish that individual? tell you how you punish it, the way that Jesus got it. That's how. And he did that because he wants none to perish. That includes you. And in that then, choosing to take all that punishment, yours included, he died. Just like the scripture promised. And then three days later, just as the scripture promised, he rose from the dead. And so we don't worship a dead Jesus. 
someone that meant well and died. We worship one who conquered the grave, who conquered your death, who conquered your sin, who conquered your guilt, who conquered your filth, and mine too. He's done all the work and there's only one thing left. And that's to say yes. All the hard part was done. The only part that could not be afforded a margin of error, God did himself because he was done. it was done for him. And the only thing left is whether you'll accept his gift. If you haven't accepted his gift, let me tell you what it's like to live outside of Goshen. By the way, if you remember, that means drawing near. You get eaten away, man. Life just tears you down. You feel a little less of yourself today than yesterday. Isn't that what happens? And you feel like even coming out of you are things that corrupt. Beloved, listen, we've all been there. It doesn't matter who you are, we've all been there. Whether you said yes to Jesus at five, whether you said yes to Jesus at 50, we've all been there. Some of us have just been longer hosts. But let me tell you on the other side of it. Once you've said yes to Jesus, welcome to Goshen. But you still have a choice where you want to live. You want to live in Christ or you want to live out but let me tell you where the difference is. When you said yes to Jesus, two things start to change. One is what love really means and what strength really means. And those are the two things that are identified by a cow to the Egyptian. So it makes perfect sense. And listen, if I could just put it simply, what Jesus is, what God is saying, Jesus says, listen, your love is diseased. It's diseased. It will tear you down and kill you. That's what love means to the world outside of Goshen. Your strength will tear you down and destroy you and others outside of Goshen. And it shouldn't surprise us that, that God is wanting to make a very clear line between cattle, between livestock, because God really wants the church. He wants the church to look very different in those two areas than the rest of the world. Let me show you what love looks like. Love on one side doesn't die. That's what it looks like. Marriages don't fail. People don't say, I loved you yesterday, today I don't. As if it were emotion. There's no emotion that lasts forever. No emotion. Emotion's ignition on a car. It's not the steering wheel. It'll get the car started, but it won't get you anywhere without good steering. So what happens is if you're living off emotion, what you have is a thousand started projects that never finish. Because love is not an emotion. It is a commitment to serve and sacrifice for the rest of your life. And I am not humanly capable of doing that. Neither are you. I never told you that. You had to. He said, I'll do it through you. I'm asking for your permission. So I would expect marriages to fail. I would expect, you know, and it's like I would expect families to erode. Dad said he loved us and off he went to, you know, to Jamaica to, to find his other wife. Or whatever it is. I mean, those things make sense. As sad as it is, that makes sense outside of Goshen because love dies there. Because love was diseased from the get-go. Does it make sense? So when someone says, I love you, but they don't know Jesus, I would say, you know what, if you're really, you know, untapped, you might say, but your love is diseased. <laughs> and I mean, we don't have to apply that too far for, for our minds probably all to go to the same place. And that is that love is disease. That is one of the problems even physically in this world around us. As people are just desperate for love, they're going to find themselves diseased sooner or later because there's too much of it going around. You think God gave it physically or allowed it physically to show us that's the way it is in the world. And please, please understand, and I don't mean it physically in my case, but I'll say this, before I knew Jesus, I was my love was extremely diseased. Not physically, but you get the idea. And that was, look at my love was a very taking, a very selfish, empty love, because I was a vacuum, desperate for fulfillment, and I looked everywhere for it, and I couldn't find it anywhere. And the problem, like many of us, is I thought the problem was someone else. I'd look and go, what's wrong with her? What's wrong with that? You know, I don't get it. The problem wasn't that at all. The problem was is that that hole was God-sized and no one else is going to fit it. Love is diseased outside of Jesus, but please hear me. If you've given your life to Jesus, it's time to make a Goshen choice about what love really is. Because if you don't, you know, if you love a famous star, what in the world does that mean? You've never even met them. You know exactly how you love them. 
You can love your dog. Now, I'm not too sure how that works with that. Well, actually, selflessly sacrificing for your dog. We kind of get that a little bit. But, but you get the idea of this total commitment to someone for the rest of your life for their benefit and not yours. And that's an undiseased love. God says this, I have loved you with an everlasting love. So therefore, God's <coughs> kind of drawing you. It tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, love never fails. Never, by the way, in the Greek means never. <laughs> love never fails. Never. And you know what's crazy? Is that when you try to show love to people, sometimes there's just no place, there's no place to look and go, oh, that's that selfless, kind, other people-focused love. Because to be honest, without a witness of Jesus in the world, there is no example of that left. It was supposed to be parents, by the way. Wasn't it? When you love a baby, because why? You think when it gets older, it's going to serve you? <laughs> Good luck with it. <laughs> like, oh, by the time that girl turns 14, 15, she'll do all the chores. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> well, you don't have to look around. You don't have to look around. <laughs> And we didn't look at each other after we had our first child and think, you know, if we got a few more of these, we'd get so much work better at it. <laughs> Those of you with parents, you know. <laughs> it was just an abundance of love. And you think, man, I, there's got to be someone else to pour this on. I'm going to explode. That's the way it's supposed to be. I, there are people I know that have been very dear to me, especially in my younger life. They never knew what it was like to hold a child with that abundance of love and just say, you know what? I'm just so thankful you're mine. I want to care for you. I want to love you. I want to lavish my love upon you. Just because I love you. And I'm not asking you to pay me back. I'm not keeping score. It isn't like the Lord carries, I'm going to turn 80 and think, I changed your diapers, it's your turn. I mean, <laughs> you're now, he's, um, Look at, here are the words again. We're wrapping this around, by the way. Deber, kebed, meod. Those were the three words. Deber, disease, destroyed, you know, eroding. Kebed, thick, heavy. Meod, the great, the bad. It happens with strength, too. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world if it were my servants would be fighting. You see, the world's view of the strongest is the person that beats up the most. And you know what? That's how I was raised. I was raised seeking to beat up the most. My goal was, and I was crazy enough, the goal was if you take down the biggest guy, you'll sleep the rest of the night. But then this is what it says in Scripture. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord. Now what's that? That's God flexing. He mounts his strength and manifest. He says this. You grow up like a tender shoot. Grow up like a tender shoot. What does that mean? You have your plants growing and one grows and goes, well, that one's not going to make it. You grow up like a tender shoot. Like a root of God and dry ground. You have no stately form or majesty that you can draw to. Stately form or majesty. This is speaking of Jesus and Isaiah. No stately form. He was not great looking. He was not big and macho. Say, well, he was a builder. He must have been. Not according to Isaiah. I say, Isaiah said he was the kind of guy that you probably got picked on in school. And imagine being God and getting picked on and thinking, I could make you blow up right now. <laughs> Think about those early secondary school years and what you could have done. <laughs> Most of us that imagined we could when we were back in our rooms, oh, he could have. But you'll stay before our majesty that we would be drawn to him. He'll come in this such a way. But he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely our sorrows he carried, our griefs he bore. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was chastised for our sins, crushed for our iniquities. And yet by his stripes we were healed. 
Because we all like sheep have gone astray, every one of us to our own ways. But the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That's what the Lord says. You know how strength is shown? And not fighting back. Now I'm not talking about just letting people beat you up. I'm talking about handing it over to the Lord. But let me show you how strong Jesus was that you're not and I'm not. Surely our sorrows he carried and our griefs he bore. Are you strong enough to carry all the grief of this world? Are you strong enough to carry all of the sorrows? Are you strong enough to carry even all of your sorrows? Yes. See, the way that God showed his strength, well, it didn't tear him down and destroy him. Matter of fact, he went to the grave and came out alive again. That's how strong he is. On the other side of it, Anyone else? And they'll tell you, there's got to be an equilibrium. Someone hits you, you hit them back. They smack you, you smack them harder. That sounds like junior high to me. That sounds like anyone who's about 13 and a boy. We used to play white knuckles. Have you guys ever played that game? Who invents stuff like that? Sitting, that's who. And you try to take your knuckles and you try to smack the guy and you just pound knuckles to each other. And so one of them says, I'm done. Who thinks of these things? Right? You ever had the one where someone hits you on the shoulder and then you turn around and you hit them on the shoulder and you keep going back until someone yells uncle? Please hear me as we close this one. Yeah. Or whatever you yell. Stop! You guys pride, right? Pride will keep you from all that. Until one of you has broken something. Listen. Psalm 28, 7 says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in Him and I am helped. Therefore my heart greatly rejoices, and with my song I will praise Him. The Lord is their strength, and He is the saving refuge to those to His anointed. In Psalm 52, as David feigns about his own lying tongue, and about the man who ratted on him for it, he says this, Here is the man who did not make God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches, and strengthened himself in his wickedness. But I... I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I trust in God's mercy. That's what I trust. Because that's where God's strength dwells. And there I will be ever green. Never a wilted day. Well, those who wait on the Lord, you know it. You know it. Psalm 40, verse 31. shall renew their strength. They'll mount up like wings of eagles. They'll run and not get tired and walk and not faint. The beloved, please come now. The world's strength is diseased. It will kill up. But my strength in the Lord has never failed, nor will. Now, here's my prayer for you and for me. First of all, have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ? Have you said yes to the love of Jesus? The offer to make you pure, to make you clean, to make you His. Have you said yes? If you have, here's my question to you for those of you who are saints in here that you know you said yes. Which love are you choosing? The love in Goshen or the love out of Goshen? Which strength are you choosing? Because history is riddled full of all of these situations that are called Christian events where we decided to murder a bunch of people to show them we're stronger. But this love doesn't kill. This, love, this, or this strength doesn't kill. This strength gives life. What are you going to do? Will you pray with me? God, I want to thank you so much for the privilege today of being able to turn to you, be able to say yes to you. Lord, please today, will you cleanse us from the things we've embraced the world on that we really should never have gone near? Lord, thank you for killing our cows. I mean, in the end of it all, Lord, this guardian of the livestock that says, I'm the goddess of love and I'm the god of strength. In the end of it all, Lord, outside of Goshen is disease and it kills people and it tears them apart and it destroys families and it destroys children. And the violence that is, that is in homes and the violence that is among husband and wife and the violence that is among kids in a schoolyard and places where people are desperate for family and join Gangs just to feel like they can belong to something, only to destroy other people corporately. And God, I just, you show me what strength is in the world. And it's weak. You show me what love is in the world, and it's diseased. 
It's so selfish. And God, I just pray right now for every Christian in here that you cleanse us. God, you cleanse us from what we've embraced in this world. In other words, get the Egypt out of us. And while heads are bowed right now, have you accepted this gift of Jesus? I'm not asking you to go to church. I'm not asking you to get in a chair. I'm asking if Jesus was really willing to die on the cross for you, and then he held out his hand, and it is outstretched. Will you accept his gift, his death for your guilt, his punishment for your filth, so that you can have his life now. And as we go to the Lord right now, I'm going to pray a prayer, and I ask you to listen. And if you agree with what's being said, I ask you simply to say confidently, Amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let that prayer be my prayer. Let those words be my words. So be it now in my life. And here it is. God, I would be a fool to you to say today that I'm perfect. I know I'm not. I know that I've done wrong. No matter how many good things I've ever done or I will ever do, it doesn't erase the fact that I've still done wrong. And you as a perfect judge, you punish wrong. You have a right to do that. That's what you do. You are a righteous judge. You're not bending laws. And yet, somehow in your infinite love, you've made accommodation for me by taking the only innocent being in the universe, yourself, your son, and nailing him to a cross so that all of my guilt could be properly paid. And amazing as it is, you made that choice to do so. And so since you love me so much that all of my guilt could be paid in full, even that much I have yet to discover. And then, as your scripture promised over a thousand years beforehand that you would rise again, you did so. And in rising again, you offer me brand new life. A life no longer in the bondage of the things of Egypt, no longer with a diseased love, no longer with a foolish view on strength, but one that makes other people more important. One that genuinely loves and cares for others with a committed selflessness that you define love to be, as you defined it most clearly at the cross. So, if all you're asking is my permission, I say yes. I say yes, Jesus, go ahead and swap my guilt for your innocence. Take the death I've earned for your life. I'll take it. And Jesus says, you become my savior and my ransom. I invite you to be the Lord of my life. I made foolish choices to get me where I am, but Lord, you have the right now to take me and steer me to that which really makes me a benefit and a blessing to others. So make me so I pray. I commit myself to you now. I surrender to your love. Have me on yours. Jesus, in your name. And if you can agree with that, I ask you to say right now confidently, Amen. Amen. Thank you.